Shut up and sit down. Hello, strangers, and welcome to the latest episode of Strangers in a Cinema. Uh, back after a brief week off because we both got very busy last week. I'm here with Pete Wall. Pete, how are you, sir? Oh, I'm very, very sorry to everybody listening to this because, uh, as you say, yeah, we missed a week. It's very uh, uncharacteristic of this show. We're pretty regular with it, and we have been for quite a long time now. So, uh, yeah, apologies for the missed week. But what we're going to do to make it up to you is we're going to pack the show full of the good stuff, meaning film reviews, film chat, and in this case, we have seen an awful lot of films over the last what is now fully two weeks Paul uh, so we have extra reviews in the popcorn section this week we also have a big feature review of the Sam Mendes war movie 1917 and as if that was not enough we're going to tag on a top five this week and the top five tying in with our feature review will be top five war films a topic which amazingly we've never covered before Paul no I thought that would when we were talking about what we were going to do to time in 1917 you kind of went we'd do top five war films and I kind of thought no we've done that surely we've done that surely we've covered that uh no we haven't um we've barely talked about I think we've possibly talked about apocalypse now I think when the uh the final cut when that came into cinemas but no war films isn't really a subject we've covered a lot of so um yeah always good to talk about something new um I have not a clue what's going to be in your list so that's always that's always exciting for me so uh yeah no it should be should be interesting i think should be interesting absolutely man absolutely well let's get into it i mean usually at this point we say okay now we go into the foyer the first section of the show where we talk about film news but i feel as though because we've been so caught up in our own business so much so that we missed a week of uh, recording I'm not sure that we've got tons of film news to talk about. I mean, of course, we can harp on the Oscars and who's been snubbed and whether or not we're looking forward to that. But I feel we've kind of covered it at this point. Paul, is there anything at all that you want to talk about this week, film news wise? Well, funny you should say that because this is some pretty big film news this week from me anyway. Perhaps, you know, perhaps there's a personal bias to this, but um, I've just come on board another short film project before my original project is finished. So, you know, I like to strike while they are hot and keep myself busy. Um, so this is a film working with uh, once again with director Andrew Harmer and screenwriter a guy called Darren Barker this is a film called Departure um, so this is certainly a slightly bigger project for me than the previous film I've worked on uh, but is currently running a greenlit campaign um, and we're looking for anyone who would like to support the film can support the film but anyone more importantly anyone who can share this greenlit campaign would be would be much we, we would be much obliged so greenlit for anyone that doesn't know about it is basically a kind of kickstarter platform specifically for film production so we we're looking for funds basically to get the film into production um, so we can hopefully make something quite special. So I have shared it on the Twitter feed. I'll probably share it on the Facebook feed. Um, so yeah, complete self-interest, but it's our show. So if I can't self-promote on this show, I don't know where I can self-promote. So yeah, no, uh, but for, on a personal level, very excited to be working on it on a slightly bigger film project than the one, one I've worked on before. Very excited to reunite with um, with director Andrew Harmer again, who I'm going to, we're talking about getting on the show actually, which would be cool. Um, so yeah, no, it's exciting times for me and it's good to be involved in in a second film so soon after the first uh which hopefully will be finished soon so you can all see it so yeah big news uh from me um the biggest film news in fact pete any anything else to add to well you know i only tag on to that you know shouts to anyone who's been with the show over the years because we have been doing this now for what like four or five years with a couple of hiatus period
periods in between. And if you are one of those select people who has remained loyal during that time, or maybe you're a newer listener who's picked up on the show more recently, what an amazing opportunity to support a kind of hatchling film director, for want of a better word, excuse me, filmmaker, for want of a better word, in terms of Paul's project. So I would say, you know, there's no pressure here. We're all friends in this group. But if you see those links and you think, as Paul says, maybe you can't provide any financial support, and that's completely fair enough. We live in some pretty dark and difficult times. Maybe what you can do is just get the word out to your network that this project needs help. And then the people who are able to help can step forward and do their bit. So yeah, I think it's a great thing to jump on board with, particularly for the kind of hardcore film fan that is attracted to something like this podcast. So yeah, all for it. And I think it has every right to trump the film news section this week. So that's what we've talked about in the foyer. Like it or not, get involved if you can. It feels good to help people make things, I think. Well, thank you, Pete. There's a little, a single tear has just rolled down my cheek. So, so thank you, sir. Um, You're very yeah, so welcome. That's, yeah, that's basically it for film news. Pete, what's up next? Well, at this point, we always depart the foyer. Uh, this time we depart the foyer with that, uh, with that rousing uh, plea for support. <laughs> and we head into the section of the show that we call Popcorn Movies. That will be coming up right after this. So, yeah, Popcorn Movies is the section of the show where we talk about any films we've seen, uh, young or old, um, old or new, in fact, is probably the word, the term I was looking for there, but I think the, the meaning came across. Uh, anything we've seen, basically, uh, whether it be uh, the cinema, whether it be streaming, whether it be on DVD or video or even VHS, perhaps. Um, yeah, so I'm going to jump in first. This is a film that I'm quite excited to talk about because it's one of the most bizarre documentaries I've, I've seen in a while. Um, this, Pete, is one I think I WhatsApped you about at the time after I watched it. It's called The uh, the Legend of Cocaine Island. Um, and uh, I picked this up on Netflix, which is now streaming on. This is directed by a guy called Theo Love, who I've never, never heard of before. Um, and it's basically the very bizarre and also quite humorous story of a very, very silly and naive man who... who ends up hearing a story from a man who has apparently buried millions of pounds with two million dollars worth of cocaine in Puerto Rico and this man who who it's one point in a cutaway in the documentary googles the word cocaine but spells it c-a-y and it's c-a-c cocaine c-o-c-a-y-n-e this is apparently how naive this documentary believes this guy to be they can't even spell the word cocaine he decides to engage with some uh, nefarious members of the underworld to try and find this uh, two million pounds worth of cocaine um and let's just say if you know anything about the story uh perhaps it wasn't the most sensible decision to make as it turns out that the people he has decided to uh, team up with are the american authorities um <laughs> uh so yeah the the concept is is incredibly entertaining the man represents himself and doesn't really do a good job of getting you to have any sympathy for him at all um the subject's great the documentary not so well made in all honesty but it does have i think some of my favorite most the most obtuse cutaways i think i've ever seen committed to a documentary at some point it talks about a court case and the, the camera cuts away to two tortoises having sex um his daughter clearly wants to get on in the act and is seems to be a talented cheerleader i think so there's a lot of cutaways to her sort of cheerleading and baton twirling at one point it cuts away for no reason at all to his daughter just playing the flute um yeah the, the cutaways are bizarre the the documentary is kind of clumsily put together, but with a subject this entertaining, um, get a few beers on board and Legend of Cocaine Island is a great laugh. Whether it's intended to be or not, I don't know, but it's it's a lot of fun. So yeah, check it out. It sounds like <laughs> a proper oddity, that one. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So it's... lots to get through, as we said in the popcorn section. So I'll kick off with this one, and it has something in common, in fact, with the in the foyer section this week. Uh, very much so, but hopefully not too much so, Paul. And I think you'll understand why. So from let's say around the year two thousand and. 10, I would imagine, maybe 2011, somewhere in there, I started listening to a film podcast hosted by two guys. Who would have thought of such a concept? Uh, that show was called The Film <laughs> Vault, and the hosts were Bull Bryan and Anderson Cowan. And throughout the production of their show, which I believe is still ongoing, uh, Anderson in particular had a dream, which was that he wanted to make a feature film. He was making shorts, he was trying to find his way, time was ticking by, and he wanted to get his work out there. Well, finally, we have that feature film. The name of Anderson Cowan's feature film is Groupers, um, referring to people or beings that change gender later in life um, and also referring to a type of bottom-dwelling fish. The setup here seems pretty enticing, I guess, as a bit of like genre work. You get an early scene in a nightclub in which an attractive girl is being danced up upon by two fairly sloppy, degenerate young men. She then uh, takes them outside and tells them that she's going to take them back to her place and they couldn't be happier they're pretty uh, as I say sloppy they're kind of drunk they've been ingesting a lot of substances and so they get into the back of her essentially a white box van which you know for most people doesn't seem like a great idea these guys think they've got it made it's a trigger yeah, warning, and, yeah, and when they wake up, they have been tied together in the bottom of an empty swimming pool, um, facing each other by the girl who has a number of points that she wishes to make to them about their continued homophobia. It turns out that they have been homophobic um, bullies of the brother of this central character. And so what she's set up is what she's calling a social experiment in which that she wants to investigate their claim that homosexuality is a choice. And effectively, you can probably see where this is going to go. This is going to involve these two guys um, choosing to be sexually attracted to each other in order to prove their own point, something that they're very averse to doing. So they're set up fine. The point that you're making, kind of fine, although Anderson Cowan being a guy, I think in his early 40s, it feels a little bit juvenile, but fine. The idea's been gestating for a long time. The problem here, Paul, and I think a cautionary tale for maybe um, aspiring or new filmmakers, is that what starts as an efficient, engaging premise and setup just devolves into all of this filmmaker's influences being sort of thrown at the canvas. So you have characters saying lines from what I know to be some of Anderson Cowan's favourite films, or twists mm. on lines from those films, which are so obvious, so uh, apparent to anyone who has any knowledge of the director. And then you introduce extraneous characters who don't really add anything to what is centrally important to the plot. The film also runs a good 20 minutes too long. This needed to be about an hour 25. It needed to make its point and it needed to get out. And I think within that framework, it could have been a success. As it is, it falls to bits, uh, unfortunately. And I, I left feeling quite quite dejected quite disappointed about what a guy that I've spent so much of my time listening to has actually produced with his first feature maybe it gets better from here but man this yeah ended up I think it's a common problem is like I think the the issue with kind of trying to emulate the films that you love and putting in lines from those films and that kind of thing is it is a common thing that a lot of filmmakers do 
but all it does for me is just make you think of those better films yeah. um and it, it takes it kind of detaches you from what you're supposed to be watching and makes you think of those films which is not really like if you're gonna do referencing and gonna do homage and you need to do it subtly yeah, really and and i mean case in point uh we all know the neo-nazi character in the michael douglas film falling down anderson cowan has yeah. talked about a particular sequence in that film many many times on his podcast and then in this character we have uh, in this film sorry we have a character who's basically a cipher for that guy and who delivers a line which i won't repeat on this show it's a family show but delivers the line verbatim <laughs> from falling down so uh, yeah it just made me kind of cringe a bit and a lot of this film kind of made me cringe and i felt like if this was made by you know a 22 year old just uh finding their cutting their teeth out of film school fair enough but like eh, i know he's a new filmmaker but i feel like he kind of should know better so unfortunately groupers is not to be recommended as far as i'm concerned uh paul That's what's next for you uh, here's a film that is to be recommended and one I haven't seen for years. This is um, Sidney Lumet's Dog Day Afternoon, Pete. Have you seen oh, this? Yeah. I think if, I think we talked about this one. I possibly talked about it on the show way back when, but we might, might be mistaken. Regardless, um, I've rewatched Dog Day Afternoon. Um, it stars Al Pacino um, as based on a true story. Actually, stars Al Pacino as a bank robber who he decides to rob a bank to pay for his lover's operation um, and turns into a hostage situation with a media circus. Um, Al Pacino's character is clearly um, a man out of his depth here. Um, he's particularly struggling with... He's not a particularly competent bank robber, I think it would be fair to say. Um, his performance is absolutely electric. Um, the film still feels years ahead of its time and it's now over 40 years, 45 years old now, which is terrifying because uh, it was originally released in 1975 um yeah if you haven't seen this i won't i won't spoil why it feels ahead of its time actually because i think if you haven't seen this it's worth it's worth being caught by surprise but let's just say it's uh it's schooling current hollywood in a lesson of representation i think it's fair to say on this one um it's an absolutely blistering thriller with a with a super one of the a career one of the career highlights from al pacino without a shadow of a doubt if you haven't seen dog day afternoon then i'm not going to spoil any more of it here what just go and find it it's an incredible it's an incredible film it's an incredibly tight thriller and it hasn't aged a day it's super yeah the the reference point for our podcast paul is we did a top five film set in the summer and dog day afternoon came up on that one Ah, uh, okay uh, nice. as i recall nice. so yeah check that that episode out as well if you want to hear a little bit more detail about that one um talking of in terms of my reviews people being kidnapped and held in a place where they don't want to be uh i have another one to talk about of that ilk which is the film ma directed by tate taylor this one basically a vehicle for octavia spencer to be really really creepy um we didn't talk about it as a feature i think it kind of passed us by it was kind of minor in some ways uh, but pretty intriguing again in terms of setup. There are a group of high school kids who are below the legal age for drinking in the United States, so they need help buying alcohol so they can party. And um, in order to purchase alcohol, they look for somebody, a homeless person, an adult of any description, and eventually stumble upon the character played by Octavia Spencer, who seems to be pretty... Um, accommodating, pretty friendly and pretty understanding of their predicament as young people who just want to have fun. She buys them alcohol and eventually, after doing this a couple of times, invites them to party in her basement as a way of being away from the prying eyes of adults and the authorities and not having to sort of just drive around in, again, a white van, there's a theme emerging, uh, in order to get their rocks off. So parties start taking place within this house. It all seems a bit too good to be true. And yep, it is too good to be true because it turns out that Ma has 
has history and that history informs the way that she's behaving. There is also a sort of Munchausen by proxy situation that she has with her daughter that comes up later in the movie. This idea that somebody is caring for someone even though the person they're caring for probably doesn't actually need caring for, particularly in the way in which uh, Ma is choosing to care for her. Um, there are good but not great performances, I think, from the young cast. Uh, Diana Silvers plays the, uh, I guess, central uh, teenage character here. And she looks to me like a sort of model turned actress. I know she's done a few bits here and there before this, but mainly 2019, I think, is sort of a breakout year. Juliette Lewis as her mother is pretty good, but really it is Octavia Spencer who steals the show. It's just a shame, Paul, because I know you've seen this one as well. It's just a shame I'm going to talk about the same thing, which is that a really intriguing premise and what could have been a tight little thriller goes so like histrionic by the end and goes into this kind of, you know, torture porny kind of territory, which it didn't feel like it needed to go there. We also have a, a sequence with Luke Evans that gets increasingly dark because of the things that he did when apparently he was a younger man. What did you make of Ma? Yeah, I thought the Octavia Spencer performance was the the kind of the only real standout from it. I I agree. You've I'd forgotten most of it until you've just just reminded me with, with describing when the the torch porn elements come into it. Yeah, I think it's the tone. The tone just jumps around a bit too much for my liking. I don't think I don't think it feels like a consistent film. It almost feels like two films spliced together in a way. Um, yeah, and the Octavia Spencer stuff. She's she's good. I just think the whole the whole premise. Ah, no, no, sorry. Yeah, it's coming back to me now. The whole premise, I think, is a little bit silly as well. The fact that these teens are so trusting of Octavia Spencer's character when she is evidently stalking them, um, and they just keep coming back seemingly for more. It's almost like they're. I mean, no one's that naive. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> like, I had that I thought too. Rightly, although like... <laughs> I, I tried to think back to my own teenage years, and to a certain degree, I think at that age you kind of are that naive. Like maybe you're right when it when it comes to sort of later on with all of the red flags. Sure, maybe you yeah. run for the hills. Uh, if you still can but in this case yeah I think it's the age of, of stupidity in terms of like growing up and thinking you know when like someone at school says like I found a thing like a place we can go to or an activity we can do without getting discovered everybody jumps on it without thinking about the consequences and I think the film plays on that quite well they're like individual moments that are particularly creepy and well staged by Tate Taylor one of them that's going to stand out for a while is a, a kiss that happens between Octavia Spencer and a and a young yeah. man uh, that ends in a <laughs> in a kind of nasty way for for him anyway. Um, so yeah, the, like individual moments were good, but as a whole, it crumbled again. And I hate this when this happens with this kind of movie where it feels like the director is like obligated in some way to throw the kitchen sink at the end of the movie. And I just wish they wouldn't. Um, what else have you got, Paul? Uh, so I've been catching up with some Spielberg films I haven't seen, um, and the one I wanted to talk about today was Always from 1989, which I didn't really know existed until I found it thrumming through the pages of my uh, Spielberg box set. Uh, this stars uh, a young Holly Hunter, uh, Richard Dreyfuss, uh, and John Goodman. Um, so the, Richard Dreyfuss plays this hotshot um, hot firefighting pilot, um, so he's yeah, he basically puts out fires, woodland fires, along with um, John Goodman, who is basically the, the same, same kind of role. They're old buddies. Um, Richard Dreyfuss is dating someone who a, Holly, a young Holly Hunter who looks just like his daughter, which is the whole kind of off-putting for the whole film, to be honest. Although there's only ten years between them, I don't think Richard Dreyfuss is the right casting for this because it really does look like he's she's or well, Holly Hunter's dating her dad, I guess. Um, 
Um, it's schmaltzy in places. Richard Dreyfus dies in a plane accident uh, and then comes back um, to try and put things right as a ghost. Uh, he mentors a younger pilot um, and kind of tries to and mentors Holly Hunter as well. He's kind of his, his lost love, shall we say. Um, it's those in parts. It's incredible. The set pieces in terms of the, the forest fires, the firefighting scenes, as you can imagine from Spielberg, are fantastic. Uh, but also it's, it is very guilty of being one of the schmaltziest Spielberg films I've, I've seen. Um, and at times it's, it's the it's the aspect of Spielberg's direction that I've never massively liked is when he goes very, very overwrought, very, very cheesy, uh, very, very over the top with, with the schmaltz. This is absolutely one of those films. Um, that's not to say there isn't stuff to like. Um, and also Richard Dreyfus is dramatically miscast here it's that horrible creepy Hollywood thing where 20 year old women throw themselves at 50 year old men just in and apparently that happens in normal life as well but yeah it, it doesn't not all of it works but when it's when it's great it's Spielberg at its best the set pieces are but it's schmaltzy in places so uh, if you haven't seen it and aren't a Spielberg completionist it's certainly there's other Spielberg films you should check out before this one but it's it's got its moments shall we say Nice. Um, uh, not quite Spielberg, the next one I'm coming to, Paul, but um, I have caught up with Jumanji, the next level. Jake Kasdan's uh, follow-up to his own, uh, what do we call this, reboot, continuation? I don't really care, of uh, Jumanji, originally, of course, the uh, Robin Williams vehicle uh, based on a board game. Um, in this case, we have the gang returning to Jumanji from by a sort of circuitous route, as is always the case, um, and discovering that the big twist this time is the uh, avatars or characters within the Jumanji video game world have been switched around. So we have people who would expect to be in certain bodies being in different bodies. I think this is played pretty well, particularly in the case of the central male character who finds himself eventually when we meet him, when the characters catch up with him deep within the Jumanji world in quite a bit of peril. He is in, in the embodiment uh, or embodied by the actress Aquafina, who does this amazing job of playing sort of um, asthmatic, nervous boy inside uh, Asian confidence. <laughs> an Asian woman's body it kind of needs to be seen to, to be understood but I think she's really great everywhere at the moment I'm on a bit of a, a Aquafina kick to be honest so that's great to see you also have of course Dwayne Johnson Jack Black Kevin Hart and Karen Gillan as the central group I said it in the first review and I don't even mind saying it again one of the attractions for me as a grown man is that Karen, uh, Karen Gillan looks absolutely amazing in this film and you know there's no getting around that <laughs> so uh, you know there are things that keep you entertained and that's one of them there's also a couple of great chase sequences in the movie one involving uh, ostriches I believe running through the desert through the sand dunes which is really good and also a kind of Crash Bandicoot, uh, Uncharted-inspired rope bridge chase involving uh, baboons, or gibbons perhaps, which, uh, it really, again, really well shot, I think, and sort of the sort of entertaining, um, you know, uh, classic action sequence that is going to get people along to watch a thing like this when we're just sequeling out a thing that's already rebooting another thing that wasn't very important to begin with. And finally, just the charisma of the central cast, I think, pull this thing along. Jack Black's always good value for a charismatic turn. Each of these characters kind of gets to play, or each of these actors, I should say, kind of gets to play two characters because of the switching gimmick that they have going on. And I think they do a pretty good 
good job with squeezing a bit of life out of something that could have died quite a long time ago. So yeah, I mean, I'm not raving about the next level of, of the Jumanji universe by any any means, but uh, it's entertaining. There is good good little bits in there. Um, Nick Jonas has a has a reasonable section of the film in which to shine. He's an actor that I quite like as well. So yeah, good good stuff to be found in Jumanji: The Next Level if you've got a spare couple of hours and you're going to sort of semi-switch your brain off. Uh, Paul, what else have you got? Uh, so this is Star Wars. Uh, this is Star Wars, uh, A New Hope as it's become known, so the 1977 original. Uh, but this is Star Wars by a way of something that not many people have seen for a number of years. Um, I finally got hold of the despecialized versions of Star Wars. Um, so uh, yeah, so basically what this is, Pete, if you're wondering, is ba- is a guy uh, called Har- or goes by the name of Harmy, has basically taken a number of sources from sort of VC uh, VC um, video disc releases, um, some limited edition DVDs from a, year, new, a few years ago, and basically what he's done is he's done exactly what the title says: is despecialized Star Wars, so return it as close to possible as its original theatrical form. So all the CGI enhancements have been taken out. Even the opening crawl now just says Star Wars again, like it used to say. There's no episode titles in it at all. Um, Han shoots first for those people that care, um, and yeah, all the all the stuff that Lucas added in, like every bit of it, as in the special editions that released in 1997, has been stripped out. And it's so nice to see it in its original form. And yeah, it's just a pleasure to see it in its original form. It's done an incredible job of taking it up to 720p, so HD ready. It looks really, really nice on the the Blu-rays. On a high-definition screen, it looks fantastic. Um, And it's just nice to see the original versions of the film again. Um, So more power to Harmy. Harmy, It goes by the name of Harmy, so more power to Harmy. And the documentary was was interesting as well because it's done. There's a little documentary about why he's done what he's done. And initially, your thoughts are okay. Well, he's only done what he's done because people don't like the additions to the story. People think the CGI that they put in in 1997 has already aged badly, which it has. And maybe he's done what he's done just because he's a Star Wars fan. But if you think about it, there's other reasons uh, that he's done what he's done, and that's because the special effects in 1977 won Oscars. And Disney's version of it, or the the Lucasfilm version of it, the only version he claims exists, has stripped out all these special effects and replaced them with CGI. So actually he's preserving award-winning special effects. He's preserving that element of film as well. So um, yeah, more power to to Harmy for putting into these despecialized versions together. And I look forward to watching the other two. So yeah, it's good effort. Sorry, Paul, explain this to me. So these are like the full-length films... Yeah, so these are so basically in 1997, Lucas released Star Wars, started to release the Star Wars special editions where he added in additional scenes, um, additional CGI effects that he thought improved Star Wars. But he then, his argument then is that once these were released, the original versions no longer exist, so they're not available commercially anywhere. So the, the theatrical things that people saw in 77 don't technically exist aside from on video disc and on a very badly mastered limited edition DVDs from I forget when these came out now from I think a similar time so there isn't there isn't a decent version of the theatrical editions available because Lucas claims it doesn't exist to the point where they put them I think into something like the American Film Institute the American Film Institute wanted to preserve 50 films I think when it first opened uh, Lucasfilm submitted the special edition of Star Wars and the American Film Institute said no that's not the version we want to preserve and Lucasfilm said well the version you want to preserve doesn't exist anymore so it's bonkers and I think all all people want is for them is fine have your special editions they're your films to tamper with but can you give us the original cuts please 
that's what people that's what people want and this is what this guy's done he's painstakingly done it he's, he maintains they're not meant to be for sale you are meant to download them if you already own right. the rights okay. to it so he's aware that he's aware of the legal gray area um without a shadow but of is a there, doubt is but there potential is, legal yeah. hot water for the guy then even though he's not commercially making them available like is there any copyright I mean, or, been a, or such issue they've been around for a while yeah. now and i think i mean i well the, lucasfilm must know the lucasfilm and, and disney must know they exist but i guess if he's not technically profiteering off of it then i'm not sure what they can actually do about it because he's not selling it um i mean i bought some blu-rays on ebay because i'm not very good at adapting downloadable files to watch on to watch on uh, on a blu-ray player at home so you can buy them some people people have mocked up nice covers for them they look pretty decent um but it, there's a specific sort of di- di- disclaimer at the front that says you may only download the in well it's his covering his own back really so yeah legal hot water i think if you're ever to profit from them but disney know they exist because jj abrams has seen them yeah. so they certainly know they're out there but it was just nice to see it nice to see it kind of as it as it was at the time, right. really. So yeah. yeah. Well, it sounds yeah. like a valuable service for fans then, and maybe there's been a decision made to kind of you know turn a blind eye to that because it. I think so. I yeah, think so. It yeah. Fulfills a, yeah. a need or a desire anyway. Um, okay. Linking to my last review, which was Jumanji: The Next Level, I mentioned the fact that the original Jumanji film, of course, starred Robin Williams. My next review is connected with that because I caught up with Robin Williams' "Come Inside My Mind," which has always struck me as a slightly strange title, but uh, it's not the best. Yeah, yeah. Don't think about it for too long. <laughs> Uh, but this one, of course, is Marina Zenovich's document of the life and times of Robin Williams, who, of course, took his own life just a few years ago. And um, I was uh, trepidatious because this is territory that feels quite personal to me when it comes to uh, mental illness and suicide and that kind of thing. I'm sort of both drawn to this kind of uh, project and also slightly, as I say, nervous, maybe sometimes coming in. I think that Marina Zenovich has done a pretty good job of giving a snapshot through the years of the development of Robin Williams as a screen performer, as a stand-up performer, and as a sort of beloved, almost national treasure, at least in the United States. Um, What is to be really appreciated here, I think, is the old stuff, like the um, stuff on set on uh, Mork and Mindy, for example, where Williams is just making his breakthrough and is becoming someone who sees himself as a sort of minor entertainer of people, both on stage and in person, to suddenly being thrust into the limelight on a national level and the impact that that has on him as an individual. His marriages, as there were, I believe, three uh, in his life, and the sort of rise and fall of those relationships is also covered in at least fleeting detail here which I think is interesting and then as we pull towards the inevitable conclusion of the story I think it's handled with quite a lot of grace Um, we have people most significant to Williams being allowed the time to speak about him and not only in light of his method of passing but more so the last days and years of his life and the positive ways in which he impacted people during that time and I think that there's this this real takeaway from the film it's easy to speculate about the mental condition of someone like Robin Williams that to be fair none of us know personally and we can only take guesses based off what other people say but this this basic desire within him to only feel fulfilled when people were laughing when people were entertained when people were smiling and this being pointed out for example by the director of One Hour Photo 
who says, uh, of course, in that movie, I'm, have you seen that movie, Paul? One hour, yeah, yeah, it's a good movie. Yeah. So like in the movie, Robin Williams plays a, a kind of um, slightly strange, slightly mysterious guy working at, a, at what, like a big box American store, where he takes a fascination with the families of people who submit their photos for processing back in the day when that happened more commonly. And the director on that <laughs> film says that what he would do is basically allow Robin to just go off on one for like maybe half an hour or an hour before rolling camera, because if Robin wasn't able to get the energy out of himself in order in terms of like doing little bits and doing little voices and entertaining people and and bringing everybody together then you would feel a sort of palpable downturn in his performance and so that that aspect to uh, a kind of bipolarish characterized disorder where you need the high as part of your existence, as long as that can be kept within some kind of reasonable limit, I think is interesting here. Although it certainly mm. isn't an in-depth study of the condition or conditions which afflicted this man. As I say, it's more kind of a snapshot of his life with information thrown in as we go. And then I particularly appreciated the time that was given to Bobcat Goldthwait, who is the director who directed Williams in World's Greatest Dad, which I would say is maybe, along with The Fisher King, one of, if not the best, Robin Williams' performance, at least dramatically. Yes, cracking. Really and uh, Bobcat was pretty much it seems Robin Williams best mate uh, particularly during the last part of his life and um, there's a sequence towards the end in which Robin Williams oldest son and Bobcat decide that having scattered um, Robin Williams ashes into the San Francisco Bay which was his wish after death they will go swimming in the bay in order to feel connected with him and his son and Bobcat both are able to talk about the way in which that moment just felt like a perfect connection a perfect uh, encapsulation of a, a moment in time where you could really appreciate what he was and not just what he wasn't or maybe what he struggled with. So I think for fans of Robin Williams' comedy, it's a good piece of work. And I think for people interested in the at least pop psychology of a man like this, it is interesting. Maybe lacked a bit of depth for me, but I'm glad I caught up with it and I would recommend it to others. That's Robin Williams come inside my mind. Have you got any more, Paul? Uh, no, not that I want to talk about. I've seen some more, but not that, not that I want to talk about this week. I think I'm I'm good. I've I've done my despecialised bit. I'm glad to get that off my chest. So I'm all happy. Nice. <laughs> I, I will tag on very quickly just one more, which is a cinematic release because I think otherwise we'll forget about it. Uh, this one was out what two weeks ago now, I suppose. Um, it is Seaberg, uh, directed by Benedict Andrews. This one, starring of course Kristen Stewart, uh, telling the real life. Uh, story of new wave icon Gene Seberg, an aspiring actress and sort of um, uh, heartthrob is the wrong word, sort of a darling of the screen in her day. But the central thrust of the plot here is the way in which she got on the wrong side of um, the authorities, particularly the FBI, for her connections to the Black Panther movement and um, particularly a character in the film played by um, Anthony Mackie, if I'm not mistaken. I have the list in front of me. Um, 
Yeah, now I'm not funny. Yeah, that's right. Anthony Mackie uh, plays uh, Hakeem Jamal, this central figure in that movement. There is a romance between his character and Kristen Stewart, and this makes waves. Photographs are taken, and on the case is a detective, a young aspiring detective, played by Jack O'Connell, of course, the great young British actor. Um, and we have a kind of... Um, slightly uh, disparate set of interests in this movie and I feel like maybe it's the film's weakness and why it hasn't quite resonated with a larger audience because on the one hand you have the tension in the relationship between Jack O'Connell and his young wife played by uh, Margaret Qualley a very good actress in her own right um, and we could have had an interesting story there but we also have the tension in the relationship centrally of course between Mackie's character and Stuart's character in terms of the uh, stakes for Stuart's character but also the stakes for Mackie's character in terms of associating with this woman who may be a sort of tourist in the movement and may bring the wrong kind of attention to, to what the, the group are doing. Um, we also have Zartzi Beats in this movie who is a supporting character or I think ends up getting kind of short shrift in terms of screen time. Um, and then, of course, we have the authorities and their pursuit through the eyes of Jack O'Connell and his own internal conflict about whether, in fact, he's prepared to go to the lengths that the FBI wants him to go in terms of the invasion of privacy of the Gene Seberg character or whether his humanity, uh, sort of empathy for her, will pull him back from delving too deep into her personal life. So there's interesting work here. Um, Kristen Stewart does her best. I think she's been better, but I think, you know, she does her best with the role that she's given. It just doesn't quite congeal into a satisfying whole because I feel like it's trying to take us in too many different directions without a clear enough focus on the dynamic between any two characters and the development of that dynamic. So just my take, but I kind of hope for a little bit more from Seaberg and currently sitting at 55 on the meta scale, uh, maybe is yeah, evidence fair, yeah. of the fact that it's, it's a slight misfire, this one. Um, but yeah, I think it's still screening around the country at the moment. So catch up with it if you're interested. That one's Seaberg. And I think that ends our popcorn movie section for today, which means we'll be back in just a moment with the section of the show that we call Coming Attractions. Right, so Coming Attractions is the section of the show where we like to talk about what is out uh, in this coming week. So we are recording on a Wednesday? Is it Wednesday It today? is indeed Wednesday. 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 It's Wednesday today. I'm getting ahead of myself. I don't know where I am in the week. Um, yeah, so Coming Attractions. So in this case, things that are coming out on the, well, this weekend, basically. Um, Pete, what have you What have you got for okay, us? Okay, I will hit you with the first one, Paul. The first one, a little film called The Grudge. I don't know if you've heard of it. It might have been out before. I think it's been out both in American form and original <laughs> Japanese form, of course, in the late 90s or early 2000s uh the the interesting hook for me here because you look at this and you think oh, okay we're trotting out the grudge again it's going to be terrible uh currently on 40 on metacritic not looking good the director paul and the writer of the screenplay here is one nicholas peche nicholas peche is the guy who directed the film piercing last year which i liked very much so much so that i think it might have even made my top 10 of the year or at least pushed very close for a place on that list uh he is a real visual stylist and a guy with a great deal of flair in his locker for making things that, that, like I say, are sort of visually sumptuous and a bit nasty as well. That, to me, bodes well for The Grudge, but every other indicator does not bode very well at all. <laughs> um, wh where are you standing on this? Have you heard? I haven't seen Piercing, so I can't really judge. But from uh, having not seen Piercing, I just think from uh, my, my gut feeling is just let it die. Mm. 
Um, just just leave it alone. I don't really understand why we need a, a yet another remake um, of it. Well, this is now a remake of a remake. I don't know if this is a remake of a remake or if it's a remake of the original or if it's a reimagining, but I don't really care. This has been done... Uh, this has been done to death and I'll, I'm going to hold my hands up and this might be an unpopular viewpoint. I didn't ever particularly rate the original Japanese grudge as a as a shining beacon of its genre anyway. So I wasn't even sure that even deserved, well, deserving a remake maybe is the wrong term. But yeah, I don't think that even justified a remake of itself. So yeah, for me, th let this one go, uh, to be honest. It's the kind of thing I'd probably find if it turns up on Netflix and I've got a hangover. I might watch it, but I'm not in a rush. We sometimes in these throw out like, oh, hey, here's a reason to be interested. So other than the director, the one beacon that I would point you towards is uh, Andrea Riseborough plays the detective character in this work of, oh, of, course she of does, the film. Actually, yes. so, so that's yeah, yeah. maybe... Okay something maybe a crumb yeah she's an actress i like to be fair so yeah and her yeah she's normally does play interesting roles so she does maybe, and maybe. i basically concur with you paul i think that the original grudge at least in my estimation has really high highs it has moments of sort of gut turning uh creepy horror and then quite a bit of it is sort of um a little bit flat perhaps but um yeah. yes i i don't know i will see this um i'm not sure that I'm going to be buzzing about it. And I certainly don't think from the sounds of things you're going to be buzzing, buzzing about it either. But we will cover it on the show because it's kind of in our wheelhouse, I think. Um, oh, another sure, yeah. one here, we have a film called The Turning. This described as a drama, horror, mystery and directed by uh, Floria Sigismondi, who is a director who has worked largely in music videos, but has also worked on really good TV productions such as uh, The Handmaid's Tale comes to mind with Elizabeth Moss. Uh, the story here, a young governess is hired by a man who has become responsible for his young nephew and niece after the deaths of their parents. A modern take on Henry James' novella, The Turn of the Screw. Uh, any anticipation here? Paul, have you seen anything about this one? I should tell you as well, in terms of reasons to be excited, uh, one of the very much uh, very much co-signed stars in, in filmmaking right now, I would say, uh, star of Dark Fate, the Terminator movie last year, Mackenzie Davis tops the cast here, uh, with support from film Finn Wolfhart that, of course, people know from Stranger Things uh, above all. I, yeah, I think this looks this looks intriguing. It's difficult, obviously, it's difficult to come to judge when you haven't really seen much much sort of well films from the director before. Uh, but yeah, you know, um, Handmaid's Tale. I think I'm through season two now. I think I'm in season two. I find it very hard to watch, but it's incredibly incredibly well made. So you know, anyone that's been involved in in any point in the production of Handmaid's Tale is certainly going to have talent for sure because it's a very very well put together TV show. So yeah, and I, I like the young cast. So yeah, this one uh, you're kind of me intrigued, which I know is your favourite term of mine. Uh <laughs> one very much yeah. for you as well, Paul, um, for a specific reason that I think you'll immediately understand. One of the youngest, possibly youngest star in this one is Brooklyn Prince, who is the the Oh, from Florida Project. Um, from Florida yeah. Project. Yeah, I'm on board then. I know. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, so strong totally cast in. looks intriguing enough. And again, we'll be back with a review in in you know due course, not too long away, I would imagine, uh, because this one releases as with the Grudge on Friday of this week. So maybe about the time you're listening to this show, uh, we have one more to cover, and that is the personal history of David Copperfield. This one described as a comedy drama uh, from director, you might have heard of him, Armando Iannucci, of course, uh, most recently of um, The Death of Stalin, which I think we both liked very much, Paul, when that was released a, a couple of years ago. And before that, Armando Iannucci is a bit of a, 
a figurehead in in, in British comedy <laughs> in terms of things like well the Armando Iannucci shows that I still go back to now because they're fantastic um, the, the thick of it and in the loop and so on um, in this one we have uh, the novel um, from Charles Dickens of course David Copperfield uh, adapted by Iannucci in his own inimitable comedic leaning and blackly comedic way uh, how are you set on this one, Paul? How are you feeling? Uh, very, 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 very excited about this one. Um, Buzz seems to be really good. I like the cast. Iannucci is can almost do very can do very little wrong in my in my book. Um, I think he's already. I love the fact he's already been. He's already baiting critics by casting. Um, uh, who's he casting the lead role? Uh, Fasayo Akinade. Dev Patel. Dev Patel, isn't it? Is playing David Copperfield. Oh, you're right about that. Yeah. Yes, so he's he's almost deliberately baiting your sort of your for want of a better word your your gammons who are going to take who are going to take adverse to a to David to a Dickens character being a man of color. He's deliberately doing. There's no doubt that's there's no doubt that's not an accident. Um, I think yeah, I think this will be great. I think it looks the trailer looks really really funny. Um, there looks to be some great some great lines in it. Ben Wishaw delivers an absolute brilliant one liner in the trailer. I think he tries to deliver a joke about um about reading a book about gentleman's humor, which is also which is entertaining. Yeah. Yeah, I think the cast looks great. Armando Iannucci's great. And I think this will be, uh, could well be one of my highlights of the year. We shall see. Yeah, we've got the likes of, you know, uh, Tilda Swinton and Peter Capaldi and all kinds uh, in the, the supporting cast. So, yeah, reason to be excited. And Simon Blackwell wrote the screenplay, who's a longtime collaborator with Iannucci. So, yeah, um, looking forward to that very much so. And releasing theatrically also this Friday. That's January the 24th. So that brings us to the end of the coming attractions section, which means that we will be back after a short break with our feature review, which this week is Sam Mendes' war epic 1917, right after this. So, as we mentioned at the top of the show, our feature review this week is the latest film from Sam Mendes, his World War One um, epic, in, it's fair to say in places, uh, 1917. Uh, Pete, set this one up for us. We've got an exciting review, as you've set up a little bit there, Paul. 1917 from Sam Mendes, this epic war movie with a particular hook in the case that this movie has seemingly been shot in what would appear to be a single shot, or at least a few very long shots stitched together with uh, clever cutaways. But to set up, we have two young British soldiers, soldiers excuse me, during World War I, who are given this task. The task that they have is to step out into no man's land between the Allied trenches and the German trenches and attempt to discover whether the German trenches on the front line have indeed been vacated, as is the suspicion from their higher-ups. So very much a kind of undesirable, fairly thankless task to risk their lives, their safety, their well-being by walking out into this horrendously um, death-strewn, dangerous uh, area of the battlefield. In central roles, we have uh, two young actors given the task, those played by Dean Charles Chapman and George Mackay. George Mackay, of course, an actor with a very pale face that we've seen in a number of places recently, and I think talked of very positively on the show and along the way these guys are going to face more than a few difficulties in getting to their goal which is to inform some generals in the allied force that in fact 
an attack, a push on another front or another part of the front is effectively a suicide mission and should be called off. Before we get into our thoughts on Sam Mendes' movie, here's a little clip. Did you hear that story about Wilco? How he lost his ear? Not in the mood. Keep your eyes on the trees, top of the ridge. They told you it was shrapnel. What was it then? Well, you know his girl's a hairdresser, right? And he was moaning about the lack of bathing facilities when he wrote to her. Remember those rancid jakes at Harris? Yeah. Anyway, she sends him over this hair oil. <laughs> Smells sweet, like golden syrup. Wilco loves the smell. He doesn't want to cast it around in his pack. So, he slathers it all over his barnet, goes to sleep, and in the middle of the night, he wakes up, and a rat is sitting on his shoulder, licking the oil off his head. <laughs> Wilco panics, and he jumps up, and when he does, the rat bites clean through his knee and runs off with it. So yeah, I just wanted to add as well, before we talk more about what we thought of it, as much as it is certainly a film directed by Sam Mendes, we've got Roger Deakins here uh, on cinematography, and I think you've, you know, I think that is this. This is one of those films that, as much, is an argument probably against the auteur theory. To be honest, in terms of, I think a lot of what works here is as much down to Roger Deakins' input as it is down to Sam Mendes' input um, as a cinematographer here. Um, but yeah, going but going back to Sam Mendes briefly, Pete. This is his first film since Spectre, I think, isn't it? If I remember rightly. Um, which I think, although bought in a decent amount of money, I don't think was critically that well received at the time. Um, I wasn't a huge fan of Spectre, but Sam Mendes, probably up until Spectre, um, I w I'm a big fan of his work. So I personally was intrigued to see what he'd do yeah, with the war Yeah, it's film. an interesting back catalogue um, with Sam Mendes, because you start with the big breakout, um, much lauded American beauty back in, what, 1999, a film that I think got so hyped and so inflated that um, I'm amongst the people, and maybe you are too, Paul, that have had a little bit of a, or felt a little bit of a backlash against that movie as maybe being overpraised, is that fair to say? I think I, I like it. I think um, Todd Solon's happiness probably does a similar thing to greater effect for, for my taste, but I still think it's a it's a solid movie, kind of a breakout performance for yeah. Um, yeah, the now point. very much shamed Kevin Spacey as well. Um, who is, in fairness, you know, he is great in that film. So I think it's, yeah, I think it's it's a solid movie, but perhaps a little a little twee in places, shall we say, yeah. I think is, is fair on that one. So. Yeah, and then in there, we've got films like uh, Revolutionary Road, Road to Perdition, and uh, Away We Go, an indie movie with uh, Maya Rudolph and John Krasinski that I quite like, actually, although it's a, maybe a little bit twee as well. But of course, we've got um, a straight-up war movie like Jarhead from the mid-2000s, um, the Jake Gyllenhaal movie, which maybe gave us a flavour as well of the kind of thing that you might expect from Sam Mendes, albeit taking on here uh, a different war and uh, a different focus and maybe a different style uh, in this project as we've touched on already. So coming in, I think for me, expectations sort of middling to higher, maybe because I know that this is a fairly accomplished director, although not one that I would necessarily push as one of my very favourites or, or a person who necessarily gets me that excited, more like a safe pair of hands. But then as you've rightly pointed out, Paul, when you're working with Roger Deakins, you're going to get at the very minimum something that looks absolutely beautiful. And I think it's fair to say that is what we get to a fairly large degree with 1917. Would you agree? Yeah, uh, no, 100%. And I think the um, the decision to 
there's yeah i think there's there's pluses and minuses to the decision to make this look like it was a single take film i mean it wasn't as we said on the last episode they you know they made they made they're not trying to lie and claim the whole thing was a single take but large swathes of it were shot on on single shot if you look into the making of it it's, it's an incredible feat what they've done here and i think for for large swathes of the film i think it, it works i think it adds something new i think the, the difficulty with war films is that Although we, we said we've not talked about many, like there's there's so many, there's a lot of war films out there. Um, it's kind of, it's obviously a ripe ground for filmmakers to cover. So it's almost like if you're going to do a war film, what do you do that hasn't been done before? Um, and I think that seems to have been the approach possibly taken by, by Mendes and certainly by Deakins here. Like, okay, well, you know, war has been brought to the big screen um, with... Uh, to incredible to incredible effect and I don't mean incredible necessarily in a good way in terms of an a accurate effect if you look at uh, the, the opening of Saving Private Ryan if you look at the Thin Red Line films we may come to when, when we talk about top fives later like the, the, a lot of battles and war have been convincingly brought to the screen so how do you do something new with this I think is kind of the, the approach they've taken here whilst at the same time delivering an, an, a film with emotional impact so mm. um i think it's i think it's good that it's done something different but i think it works to i think it, uh, in this film i think it works to varying effects for me yeah and i even think back to a film that i didn't particularly like but the the spielberg film war horse from a few years back did a pretty good job of having these sort of fairly long takes and tracking shots across the battlefield and and really quite beautifully framed scenes um it's worth mentioning as well in terms of jumping off this point about sam mendes as director we learn at the end of the film uh, it's not spoiling anything that the events of this film are sort of a tribute or um in memorandum to Mendez's own grandfather and his experiences in World War One. Um, he died in 1991 but was born in 1897 so obviously his active service during World War One is front and centre in the mind of the director here and you can see in 1917 for all the flair of the one-shot-ish technique and the beautiful Deakins photography that there is a, a real sense of wanting to get detail into the frame in terms of putting the audience in something like a situation that is almost unimaginably horrible uh, during these days of, of World War One, post the Battle of the Somme. I mean, something that struck me from the very beginning of the movie, Paul, is we have these two young guys who've been tasked, as we say, with this um, basically what sounds like a, a, a suicide mission to, to walk out into no man's land. And uh, they are greeted by Andrew Scott, the lieutenant played by Andrew Scott, who seems pretty much resigned to the fact that they are walking into their own graves by uh, taking on this mission, even to the extent that he gives them a flare pistol with which they're supposed to signal from the other side if in fact the trenches have been vacated by the Germans and he says I'm not very fond of losing these so as soon as they start shooting at you make sure to throw it back almost like this is what's going to happen so don't waste my piece of equipment in the process of being you know riddled with bullet holes um it, yeah, it's daunting and I think that Mendes and Deakins do a pretty good job of making it feel fairly daunting for the audience as well. There are definitely moments in this film, starting from the first act, where I uh, audibly did something in the cinema. I kind of did, you know, one of those jumps where you end up sort of halfway up your backrest because something happened that you didn't quite expect to happen or it was louder or more impactful than you expected. So, I mean, do you agree on that? Do you think that... Further than the, you know, big hook that everybody talks about, this fancy shot, and we'll get more into that as we go, did you feel like you were in the action to the degree that you possibly could hope to be from, you know, a, a trip to the cinema? I think so, yeah. And I think I would agree with that. There's, um, 
there's attention to detail missing. I think we we were talking just just before we came back on air about um like the bits where the, he kind of puts his hand down on a corpse and his hand goes into the corpse and it's there's there's little bits like that that I kind of think you haven't really seen that level of I don't I can't recall I've seen that level of kind of grim detail before of kind of I guess the I guess we've seen details of what happens in a battle but the, the I don't think we've really seen the aftermath of of, yeah. of battles kind of portrayed in this uh, way before Absolutely Paul and just to tag on that point did you notice uh, the detail that the uh, McKay character who puts his hand into that corpse has previously, because we're obviously tracking with him in this one shot, uh, he's cut his hand. So there's an open wound from barbed wire that they've pulled aside. So when he puts his hand into the corpse, he's also infecting a wound with the decomposing corpse of a fallen soldier. I mean, it's a horrible attention to detail, but it's a real attention mm. to detail that kind of turns your stomach a little bit and, and absolutely necessary to, I think, have that kind of thing there when you're dealing with a period of history that is this dark and situations that are this grim. I mean, to leave those things out is to do a disservice to the people who had to face that horror at the time, I think. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And it's, yeah, the, you know, the attention to detail. In fairness, if you look back on Mendes' back catalogue, his, his attention to detail has always been sharp. Um, and as said, with, with Deacons on board, I think it's, it's only going to improve, really. So, yeah, I really like that attention to detail, those kind of things, as I said, I don't think we've seen before. Um, I don't think directors have necessarily, not deliberately shied away from it, but I think there's been more of a focus, as I said, on, on the battles themselves as opposed to the aftermath of battles. So, and I think this film, although there are, you know, there are some incredible battle scenes in this film, I think there's there's more of that. And I think that is actually something that the... That's something that the the fact they're essentially telling a story in real time gives them the opportunity to, to do that, I guess, without without feeling the need to break away to set up another chain of narrative or introduce more characters, I guess. So that's one of the I guess one of the advantages. The 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 real time well, it is pretty much real time to be fair. I did bunny ears then, but it is pretty much real time to be fair. Yeah, and, and you say, you know, uh, without too much time to introduce extraneous characters because we're so focused on these guys, like you say, in real time telling their story and their progress on their journey. But one of the central characters in the film, I think, in a certain sense, is Mud. I mean, considering yeah. <laughs> the depiction is of World War One, this is essential, but the mud that the guys are slipping over when they clamber out of the original trench on the Allied side, the mud that is underfoot and kind of, you know, as soon as they start that journey, their feet are clearly waterlogged. I kept thinking about the condition trench foot, which was so prevalent yeah. during World War One, because you're seeing this congealed kind of mud and dirt and flesh and grime and rats. And then everywhere they go, even to the extent that um, later, on when Mackay's character is attempting to continue um, with a group of guys in the back of a military vehicle and they get stuck in the mud and then all the lads have to pile out and try and push out of the mud that is clogging everything in this battle, almost like its own metaphor for the complete lack of progress despite all the huge efforts of such a great number of men. So yeah, I think the role that mud plays in 1917 is crucial. I wanted to come on Paul to this thing though that we kind of skirted around so far which is about this single take or apparent single take we know that that's a, an artifice here and I think that you have maybe from what you've indicated some reservations is there anything in the movie where you really thought like it wasn't necessary or maybe could have been could have been a moment to just put in a few more cuts maybe to break things up or do you think it largely worked for you during the the running time I think that I, I think that the difficulty with with something like this is, and I I should I think I put on Instagram at the time after I'd come out of seeing the film that it's a film for me that definitely I, I should see again because 
I think the problem was because I was aware that this this was happening in the film. I found myself distracted at times from the story, distracted from the characters because I was kind of I was marveling in in the technical side of things. I mean, in, in terms of technical accomplishment, it's up there with with Dunkirk in terms of how well it's made, and I think in in how well it conveys you know the war scenes, the battle scenes like running towards the end of the film the scene that is in the trailer is running down the trench as people go over the top it's just nothing short of incredible so for me when it works it, it's it's an absolute it's an incredible technical accomplishment and like to to be part of filming that must have been incredible like it's i've never seen it done this well before so you know it is a remarkable achievement and it's one of those films that you just have to sort of sit back and go that's amazing how they've done this but for me for me i was almost so wrapped up in that at times that i kind of forgot about characters um and so for me the story the story and the characters didn't grab me as much as they should now whether that's my fault or the fault of the fault of the filmmakers i don't know and it almost almost need a second view into to justify that but what i will say is the difficulty with committing to doing the whole film like this is that certain um certain elements of filmmaking that are used to establish character like close-ups on faces well, a lot of close-ups really you don't really get close to any of the characters here so when certain characters are talking rather than shot reverse shot which you'd be used to so it cuts from a character's face to another character's face the camera pans round the characters to show them both talking now those are the times when I think I found it possibly the most distracting and for me it didn't it may it, again maybe second view and will clear all this up because I won't be as distracted I will I would hold my hands up on that but for me, those are the times when I thought, is it really needed here? Did they need to, do these shots need to look like this or, or would, a, would an edit have hurt? Because I don't think it would have hurt the film to have some incredible set pieces shot in one take um, and not the whole and not the whole film look like it was shot in one take, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a, a salient point because we're not in the like first person perspective of a single character. So there's not a kind no. of um, continuity in terms of the consciousness of one person. I mean, before I'd seen the film, I'd heard this thing. I think it was uh, Robbie Collin talking about the fact that, of course, it's not one shot because at one point, one of the characters is knocked unconscious and then we fade to black and come back. So maybe I had the misconception that we were kind of in the consciousness of one character. And that's not the case. We're, we're following as a sort of uh, omniscient observer of these two guys so I think I agree with you on that point that there could have been cuts there to just make particularly the dialogue that you mentioned a little bit more uh, maybe coherence too strong but um, just a little bit more in keeping with the standards of filmmaking or the the standard uh, approach to filmmaking that you're more used to so that like your experience you're not taken away from the emotional heart of the movie and the, the drama between the the characters so I certainly something to be said and also Paul I suppose I would add to that that there are a couple of sequences, one in particular, which is very impressive, but which is in, involves the shooting down of an aircraft um, mm. coinciding with the position in which our two central characters are at that time, which to me, although impressive, although beautifully framed and although narratively important, it's hard for that not to feel a little bit contrived. When we know that the character's going to stay, excuse me, the camera's going to stay with these characters, we're going to be on an unbroken um, sort of uh, tr pair of tracks here with this camera. The fact that that plane lands exactly where it does seems awfully convenient for the narrative, I suppose is all I would yeah. say <laughs> about that. As much as I'm really impressed by the, the shot there and um, it's a, 
a centrally important piece of the story as we move forward. Then we've got, Paul, these two young guys in central roles, as we mentioned, uh, Dean Charles Chapman, the lesser known, I think, of the two, and George McKay, maybe the central character of the two. Uh, Performance-wise, impressed with both of these? Yeah, I'd say so. Again, I think, uh, yeah, uh, in short, I liked uh, George McKay is an actor that I, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I think we've seen him seen him in a few films now and uh, I think he's definitely going to be uh, a big star for sure um, I thought he was good here I thought that the two of them did have some did have some good camaraderie between them which I thought was was the heart of the film but again I maintain that I was probably too distracted by the technical elements of it as magnificent as they were to really engage with the pair of them but I don't think that's that's a slight on their performances to be honest I mean you've got and you've got a, an incredible supporting cast here as well I think Mark Strong turns up Benedict Cumberbatch Andrew Scott as you said um, Colin Firth um, and I think they all do good work but I think the the stars of the film the star of the film here is the cinematography I think yeah yeah I, I think I would only add to, to that that I think George McKay is a real standout like I think that for all that you've mentioned I think being entirely valid about the maybe possibility of being distracted by the showiness Mm. of the production it's a real credit to George McKay that at least from my point of view although I acknowledge that that was a concern that was a small issue for me I think that the strength of his performance in particular kept me with the ongoing uh, series of unfortunate events for want of a better description (laughs) that were befalling this character and made some of the contrivances feel a little bit more acceptable I guess because they're sold to you so effectively by this young actor and yeah I think of things like The Secret of Marabone that I know I like more than you so um, maybe that has an impact (laughs) here but also Captain Fantastic if people haven't seen it is a standout in the showcasing Uh, I forgot he was in Captain Captain Fantastic what George McKay can, can do um, anything further to add then Paul I mean I, where are you coming down on this one because we've talked about some of the positives maybe some of the less positive elements in terms of the pantheon of f- war filmmaking where does this stand for you you don't need to rank it but like where does it stand in your estimation I think in terms of in terms of technical accomplishment it's it's all the way up there uh, without a shadow of a doubt I mean like you, you'd see this on the biggest screen possible whether this film works as effectively off the big screen is is something that remains to be seen so that that is where I have my concerns and I'll I use Dunkirk as, as a touchstone here because Dunkirk is a film that I, I had an incredible, incredible experience with in IMAX um, and was absolutely, absolutely blown away by Dunkirk on first viewing. Um, when I watched it at home outside of outside of the IMAX, I think Dunkirk was was lacking heart um, for sure. And I struggled to engage with Dunkirk outside of a cinema environment. Whether or not this will be the same, I said t- time will tell. But when but that being said, you know, from I can't sit there. You cannot sit there as as a lover of film and not just drink in how well made nineteen seventeen is. There's the shot in the there's a shot in the where the village goes up in flames is just incredible with the camera pans sort of cam, camera pans behind him. The shot I mentioned earlier where George McKay's character is running across the top of a trench after everyone else has gone over just incredible. Like the the plane crash, although the plane has crashed conveniently there, it still looks beautiful. Like the whole film just looks incredible. It is it is a true feat of filmmaking, and if you have absolutely any interest in cinema then you absolutely need to watch this film for, without a shadow of a doubt it's a it's a it's a crowning achievement for Roger Deakins and that is a man who's got a number of crowning achievements shall we say mm. so um yeah so as as a fan of cinema it's an incredible piece of work and I, I cannot rate it highly enough um as a film that I engaged with I struggled at times and that might be because I that might 
yeah, I struggled at times to engage with it um, and didn't quite, didn't grip me as much as stories from other war films have done, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think I basically concur with you, Paul. I think, yeah, just, just to, I won't reiterate everything you've just said, but I basically agree with those points. And I think um, we'll get on to what we believe to be the very cream of the crop in terms of war filmmaking in our top five coming up shortly. In terms of films that revolve around a central long or unbroken shot, I mean, as far back as things like Rope and Russian Ark, coming forward to things like, more recently, Birdman, man i guess and uh, victoria do you remember that one the yeah, european movie. Victoria, i mean yeah. completely different narratively obviously we're not dealing here with war films but there are other recommendations in that particular subset of you know cinematic endeavor although i think to a larger or um, smaller extent with many films that attempt to use this device I think some of the same issues maybe crop up would you agree that maybe it's very difficult to make a film that doesn't cut or at least appears not to cut for long parts of its running time without distracting the audience yeah I would say so although interestingly and maybe this is this is me not doing my reading into Birdman I guess I didn't know Birdman was shot in that way and I didn't even realize when I watched it mm. so I clearly wasn't paying Birdman anywhere near enough attention so I didn't find it distracting then uh, Silent House is another one that did it I think that was originally a Spanish or Argentinian horror film I think I think that did it but yeah there are some limitations to, to the to the the technique but I would say in fairness to 1917 in fairness to Roger Deakins I don't think I've seen it as done as well as it's done here um in terms of in terms of just how well this film is made i can't speak for it highly enough yeah so a, a solid recommendation if not without some reservations some some issues i think on our part so films that maybe don't have as many reservations paul that fit into the same category of war films is what we're going to deal with next when we come back we will have our top five war films right after this Right, so as we mentioned before the break, this is our top five favourite war films. So yeah, it's pretty much. Oh, there's no, there was no time limit put attached to this, so this can be war films of any age. Um, yeah, so we're gonna go through this pretty quickly. Pete, do you want to start with your number five? I sure will. Before I do that, I just want to say that making this list has made me realise a couple of things. One, I it is a bit of a blind spot for me, war films. Not okay. because I haven't seen a large number of them, I certainly have, but I don't think it's a, a sub-genre that I necessarily gravitate towards with quite the enthusiasm that I do some others. So I realise there are some massive holes in my uh, watching <laughs> uh, experience and some of those are going to be you know, laid out for everybody to point and laugh as we go down this list maybe but uh that having been said my number five is the Catherine Bigelow movie The Hurt Locker this one released in 2008 um and set during the Iraq war of course it deals with this uh kind of white knuckle side to battle um I suppose all sides are white knuckle sides to some degree but uh in terms of bomb disposal and bomb disposal experts having to edge their way closer to unexploded explosive devices and attempt attempt to deactivate them without imperiling themselves and their colleagues. 
Um, it is uh, written by Mark Boll, directed, as I say, by Catherine Bigelow and uh, starring centrally Jeremy Renner and Anthony Mackie, amongst others. And it just had that kind of edge of your seat, high tension that could sit quite comfortably in a thriller for example, I think Bigelow dealt with that superbly in this movie. I mean, better so than I think she has maybe across her entire back catalogue. And I just want to tag on to my recommendation of Hurt Locker at number five, uh, a little shout out to a movie that I think is massively underseen called Kilo 2 Bravo or Kajaki that came out in 2014. Merely putting it here because it's another one that deals with unexploded explosives and high tension, uh, this time with British forces, I believe, in Afghanistan uh, in that case, uh, directed by a director called Paul Cattis. Check that one out if you're a Hurt Locker fan, because as I say, not enough people have seen Kajaki or Kilo 2 Bravo. It's got two titles for some reason. Um, but yeah, w worth a look as well. So my number five is The Hurt Locker with a, a shout out to Kajaki. What have you got a number five, Paul? Uh, well, my number five, um, strangely enough, is a Catherine Bigelow directed war film from 2008, <laughs> uh, also known as The Hurt Locker. <laughs> nice, nice pick. Um, yeah, I'm not going to add too much to what you've said, um, aside from the fact that, yeah, in terms of an exercise intention, the sniper scene in Hurt Locker uh, the first time I saw that I have to say it was probably one of the tensest cinema experiences I can recall having like I came out of the Hurt Locker just feeling exhausted um, absolutely exhausted in in a good way um, the tension is the tension there is incredible as you say it's you know it's it's an interesting study of, of Jeremy Renner's character about actually, you know, do you get addicted to war essentially and and that kind of thing. And that's that's an interesting approach I've not really seen taken before. Um, and yeah, breakout film for Jeremy Renner as well, who was an actor I'm quite a big fan of, but mainly based on his performance here, to be fair. So yeah, I'm not going to add too much more to that. But yeah, if you haven't seen it, it's an incredibly tense, incredibly tense film. Um, and it was nice to beat Avatar, it beat Avatar at the Oscars as well, which is always quite satisfying. So um, yeah, Hurt Locker is a great film if you haven't seen it. And that is also my number five. Uh, Pete, back to you. Nice. Next one, of course, Paul, is uh, Hataru no Haka or Grave of the Fireflies. I thought about entering into my list as a foreign language entry, Pan's Labyrinth. And I kind of feel like maybe there's a not in quite enough of a direct war focus in Pan's Labyrinth mm. for me to justify It's an it. interesting thought. I see where you're coming from. It's an interesting thought. To be yeah, clear. that one, Spanish Civil War. But this one here, Grave of the Fireflies. Uh, yeah, viewer discretion is advised because this one will tear your little heart out. Um, this is from director Isao Takahata. Uh, this director, also responsible quite recently for... Um, the Tale of Princess Kaguya from 2013, but before that, things like uh, Pompoko, Only Yesterday as well. Um, yes, it tells the story of a brother and sister who are struggling to survive in Japan during World War II. Um, it is exquisitely animated. This is a Studio, studio Ghibli production, I should say. Um, this beautiful metaphor around fireflies in the night sky will stick with you for a long time. It's heartrending. It's sensitive. It's uh, emotional. And, and just a delicate portrayal of, I think, the human impact that war has on children and younger people um, as they experience things that they didn't choose to experience. Um, you've seen this as well, Paul, I, I think. Yes, it's devastating. So, yeah, I would, viewer discretion is advised. I would completely agree with that. <laughs> so, yes, my number four pick for uh, war movies is Grave of the Fireflies from 1988. Paul, what have you got at number four? 
Uh, so I've got a film from 1987, uh, directed by Stanley Kubrick. This is Full Metal Jacket. Um, this uh, People will probably be aware of this film. I imagine most people have seen it. Um, it features, um, who's it got in the cast? There's an incredible performance from Vincent D'Onofrio as Private Piles. Um, Ali Ermi as an absolutely piece of shit. Jill Instructor and Matthew Modine as well, among many others that turn up in this film. Um, yeah, I think for me, it's very much, it very much is a, a film of two halves for sure. For me, the most effective half is the opening half uh, where they're drilling the recruits before they go to Vietnam. I think it's absolutely incredible. Uh, Vincent D'Onofrio's performance, I don't think will ever be bettered. Um, and it is a film that pulls absolutely no punches about war, as you might expect from Stanley Kubrick. And then the second half, as I said, probably not as strong it's well it's difficult to say because this the second half probably not as strong because we've seen we've seen vietnam uh, we've seen action in vietnam before it's done very well here it's done by kubrick but for me it's the first half of the film that makes this film and d'onofrio's performance and watching just what sort of military service can do to people that aren't ready for it and don't necessarily want to do it um and yeah it's it's an incredible intense study of that and actually what war can do to people and prepping people who of soldiers who have been drafted and have no desire or aren't physically capable of being soldiers i think it does an incredible job of uh, of portraying that so yeah full metal jacket is my number four well isn't this serendipitous paul my number three pick is a movie called full metal jacket <laughs> <laughs> just taking the baton from you and running with it yeah uh, not tons to add i mean it's very much this um the anti-war screed i think uh, full metal jacket putting you in the heart of battle with someone who effectively doesn't want to be there which is kind of how i feel when i'm watching a war movie to be honest as much as i can uh, admire the craft and there's a emotional heft to a lot of these productions i often feel like i kind of just want to leave and lucky for me that i have the privilege to do that from the comfort of my own home or the cinema i guess um yeah what more to add i mean the attention to detail is something that is so synonymous with stanley kubrick it almost doesn't bear talking about uh, apparently i learned that during the barrack scenes that you mentioned at the uh, in the opening half of the film uh, kubrick designed a special lens so that every recruit would be kept perfectly in focus because he wanted an entirely um, egalitarian sort of le level playing field that n meant that nobody was special or more significant than any other actor working on the production. Oh, wow, also okay. the fact that the scenes in Vietnam of course I think are shot in like Docklands. They were shot in the UK anyway. Shepperton Studios. Oh is that right? Yeah so, yeah, the, I think so, yeah. so this uh, this artifice is sort of carried through that we're in Vietnam where in fact we're not and I think it's done very effectively at least in my case I only learnt the information about shooting in the UK after I'd finished seeing the film and I kind of bought it first time round and then the thing that sticks with me I think in Full Metal Jacket amongst many others is uh, just the, the praying for death um, Vietnamese girl towards the end I, I've never yeah. been able to wipe that from my mind uh, yeah the, the subtitle reading just kill me um so yeah that is full metal jacket i suddenly feel quite depressed that's my number three and um paul what have you got a number three number three for me a film that we talked about fairly recently because uh, they released the final cut of it uh, only last year this is francis ford coppola's apocalypse now from 1979 um it's a magnificent piece of filmmaking with some magnificent magnificent performances um and a film of which i think we said at the time when we reviewed the final cut we will may never see the like of again in terms of 
of just the pure scale um the pure scale and craft that's gone into making this film we talked about the technical accomplishments of 1917 and it is nothing short of an incredible accomplishment but apocalypse now i think the the helicopter attack in apocalypse now is just insane to think that that was shot with actual helicopters with actual military hardware and everything you see in apocalypse now is using actual military hardware the scale of the film is is like nothing almost nothing you've seen since um and not only that but it's an incredibly it's just an incredibly engaging um and thoughtful film about the chaos of war at the same time um with some yeah legendary performances from martin sheen uh marlon brando dennis hopper uh, you've got everyone in here it's just yeah it's an absolute absolute landmark of cinema um and yeah possibly surprised it's not a little bit higher on my list but then you know a top five is fairly interchangeable but it's absolutely one of my favorites and definitely one of the greatest war films ever made for me then, Paul, at number two from 1986 and from a director with, let's say, a patchy back catalogue is uh, Oliver Stone's film Platoon. This is a film that I saw, one of those, I feel like this comes up quite a bit on the show when you say, like, I saw this a little bit too young. And I think I saw Platoon <laughs> a little bit too young. Uh, so the, the, the focal point, I think, for me with Platoon and the takeaway is like this like icky gross kind of gross moral maze that the uh, men serving in the military effort are placed within some of them a little bit more by choice and some of them a little bit less so in terms of being a part of a group in terms of peer pressure in terms of being pushed into doing things that you're not comfortable with to begin with and maybe become increasingly uncomfortable with as things escalate out of your control you don't have a support system around you you don't have people to turn to and if you're seen to be cowardly or shirking responsibility or not for want of a better term going along with the lads then you are going to be cast out and you're going to be treated differently and treated badly and I think it stands out as Oliver Stone's greatest achievement platoon um it it shook me up a lot honestly um and I don't think it's one to go into lightly I mean not that we for a second would suggest that any uh, movie dealing with military conflict is going to be an easy watch but yeah, in the in the kind of murky uh, world of the Vietnam War, where people are losing day by day and week by week their humanity and making decisions that back at home, maybe you would hope they would make differently. Um, it, yeah, it's it's a tough thing to be around, and the, the cast we've got Willem Dafoe and Charlie Sheen and Tom Berenger and a, a strong cast. Um, I think congealing or coming together into something greater than the sum of the parts in terms of this production. So yeah, uh, Platoon, I watched very young. I've rewatched since and has always stayed with me as a really um, resounding indictment of the ways in which men can fall below what we would hope they would be during the, the pressure cooker of war. So yeah, that's my number two pick. It's Platoon. Yeah, it may have made my top five. I just haven't seen it for years now. So it probably needs to be fresher in my head. So I'm going to rewatch it because I do remember very much liking it um, at the time. Obviously, it's got a good reputation, but it's just been a long time since I've caught up with it. So I need to need to rewatch it. But a film I have watched recently, and that's why it's sitting pretty at number two in my favorite top five favorite war films is Terence Malick's The Thin Red Line from 1998. Um, there, just to get it out of the way, yes, there are probably one too many shots of curtains blowing in the wind in this film, but there's one too many shots of curtains blowing in the wind in all of Terence Malick's films. So, um, hey ho. Uh, moving on from that, this is a war film done, very, I say, very, very differently. There's not a great deal of war actually in this film, although when the set pieces do open up, they are nothing short of incredible. Um, it's a very thought provoking, very, very 
slower paced war film than I'd say I'd say we were used to. Um, with an incredible cast, you've got Sean Penn, Elias Kotias, George Clooney turns up in this, John Cusack, um, incredible turn from Nick Nolte. Um, it's yeah, it's a brilliant, more meditative um, approach to war filmmaking for sure. Um, Jim Caviezel's great in this, um, set in World War II um, on the Japanese on the front in the Pacific. Um, essentially, kind of, I guess Jim Caviezel's the focus of it is kind of why he decides he's had enough of war and decides to go and live with a tribe of with a tribe of, of natives. Um, but yeah, it's a very, very thought-provoking film, incredibly well-shot film, and the the final assault on Hilltop Five Ten, I believe it is, is one of the most exhilarating pieces of cinema I can honestly say I've seen. And I watched it again the other day, and even at, even at home, I just sat there glued to it. It might be because there is an Uncle track, and they're one of my favourite bands, uh, Eye for an Eye, that lifts lines of dialogue verbatim out of the thin red line. So it may be why I was even more engaged with it. But yeah, no, I find the the whole film to be an, an incredible experience a slower pace than what a lot of people would be used to with war films but um still uh, absolutely one of my favorites that's the thin red line uh terence malick 1998 nice um number one for me uh could be somewhat predictably i guess is one that's already been mentioned this is the francis Ford coppola movie apocalypse now that we reviewed in full actually on the show not too long ago so go back and check out that review in addition to what paul said about it today um again we're in the vietnam war i mean i think listeners to this uh, almost two to a person will have already encountered this movie but if not make time for it it runs fully what two and a half plus hours depending on which version you're watching at the time uh theatricals are one to watch i think out of the three yeah uh but here you deal with just the the madness of war seems to be at this point almost a cliche but there's no better encapsulation of that i think than apocalypse now and the just um just the toll, the physical and mental toll of being embroiled in a conflict, particularly a conflict as seemingly ludicrous and endless and um, and miserable as Vietnam, that that characters are just just having pieces of themselves sort of torn away as they make their way uh, to search for Colonel Kurt, this guy who has gone sort of native this idea that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely is embodied in this man who has gone mad with power and is the eventual end point of a journey that takes in all manner of vietnam war horrors in all of the 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 detail uh, that paul you mentioned when you discussed it in your list so yeah apocalypse now will stay with you for a long time and very much i think you touched on it paul like 1917 may seem a little bit in the final estimation like style over substance in the case of apocalypse now i think the substance is so strong that all of the style is more balanced perhaps in Mm, comparison with the the feature movie review this week so uh, yeah my number one from 1979 is apocalypse now from francis ford coppola paul what have you picked for your number one my number one is the second Stanley Kubrick film on this list. Um, this is Paths of Glory from 1957, um, which is nothing short of a 90-minute, well, no, yeah, 90-minute masterpiece. Pete, if you haven't seen this, uh, I implore you to do so. Um, it stars Kirk Douglas as a uh, commanding officer who, um, after he refuses to attack, he refuses to attack an enemy position because it's suicide. So sorry, this is set in the First World War. The him, him and his officers refuse to attack an enemy enemy position because it's suicide. 
the commanding the, the powers that be then strike them up for court martial um, and he then must defend them in a court of law so there's wars on two fronts here there's the scenes in the trenches at the beginning which were a film shot in 1957 as you imagine with Kubrick are still remarkably well shot the film looks fantastic uh, and then you have the move to the courtroom which basically is an absolute skewering of the establishment and just what an what a complete waste of life um, and how badly managed the first world war actually was um, and the scenes in the courtroom are just as exciting as the scenes in the trenches um, and this is i would argue possibly an underseen kubrick i don't know um i'd say more people have probably seen full metal jacket than paths of glory i think oh, i might be wrong question. um yeah, without but paths of glory is is for me that I, I love full metal jacket but paths of glory for me is his strongest war film i think without a shadow of a doubt i think it's it's an absolute masterpiece it's an incredibly tight film um and yeah just just see it it's super, absolutely superb mm. yeah it's a it's a strong pick and and i i say that with the uh, consideration that i have not seen it yet <laughs> and i need to um i wanted to paul because i feel like so much of my list at least focused on vietnam focused films can i just throw in two recommendations very quickly they are yeah, the ken burns long form documentary the vietnam war it's still screening on uh, or streaming i should say on netflix i believe uh, this one an episodic massively detailed breakdown of the various elements and stages of that conflict and ken burns is your guy if you're looking for something in sort of um, granular detail uh, almost. And then another one that's a little bit shorter, well, quite a lot bit shorter, actually, uh, just an hour and a half or so. Last Days in Vietnam, which is a PBS documentary, uh, as you would guess, dealing with the very last days of Vietnam and some astonishing little known stories about um, the removal of forces from uh, American occupied Vietnam in this one sort of stacked on top of each other each story less believable but absolutely true that compared with the last uh, including just sort of routinely dumping helicopters into the ocean because there wasn't space <laughs> on uh, on line like uh ocean liners that's not what i mean uh the, aircraft carriers yeah that's right uh there wasn't ocean space liners. <laughs> ocean liners there wasn't space <laughs> on the uh, aircraft carriers for the helicopters so they were just booted into the ocean to sink to the bottom but yeah last days in vietnam's really good as well so yeah those two because there's so much in terms of like a fictionalized version of, of the vietnam war i think those are worth watching for something maybe a bit more uh factual or or yeah a, a documentary format anyway yeah, and They Shall Not Grow Old, the Peter Jackson documentary on World War One is fantastic as well, if anyone hasn't seen that yet. That's really, really well done as well, where he's essentially colourised um, uh, a vintage, vintage is the wrong word, actual footage of, of the time in the trenches. So that was really good. So yeah, there's a lot of good stuff out there for sure. But yeah, um, that's pretty much the show, I think, Pete. Is there anything you want to give credit to? There is actually something I want to give credit to, because we've just done a top five on war films, and it's all like very murky and dark and death. And so I want to go completely the other way, complete left turn. My absolutely huge recommendation for this week is on Netflix at the moment. You've got no excuses. Most people have it. This is the uh, sort of short form comedic series, Medical Police. Maybe it's not for everyone. I see the average uh, IMDb reviewer doesn't know what they're talking about. It's got quite a low score at the moment. But are you aware of this medical police, Paul? 
Yeah, it's going to be awkward now. I watched half an episode and switched it off. Oh, stay with it. Come on, man. You've been watching too many serious movies. Uh, This one is like a spin-off, but in longer form than Children's Hospital. Children's Hospital ran about 10 minutes an episode. This runs like 22 minutes an episode. So centrally, we've got people like uh, Rob Hubel, who you'll know from that series, um, and a cast of American comedic actors, largely from sort of improv backgrounds, but you'll have seen in all kinds of other uh, projects. Erin uh, Hayes, who's amazing in this. Uh, as a, so, so the idea is that here we have some paediatric doctors from the Children's Hospital, but the Children's Hospital, of course, is based in Sao Paulo, Brazil, because why would it not be, uh, to deal with the medical ailments of expat children living in Sao Paulo. But at the same time, these doctors have to solve an international plot which revolves around a virus that is going to infect and kill everybody in the world. It's ridiculously stupid. Uh, Henry Winkler's in it. He's got quite a good role from episode one. But you you need to get yourself, I guess, into the headspace for a thing like this because it's just a skewering of like um, procedural NCIS type investigative American over-the-top police dramas. And I think it's done really brilliantly. We binge the whole series in like two days, I think. It won't take you very long. Uh, Rob Corddry as well, great in this. Uh, Lots of people to recommend it as far as I'm concerned. If you're into that kind of thing, which, you know, not everybody is. Uh, Paul, (laughs) anything else to recommend from from your side? Uh, I've been, what have I been rewatching? I've just started rewatching the the Borg and Picard-centric episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, um, which is, uh, most of it, some of it's aged remarkably well, I'll be honest, uh, because I'm very excited because the Picard series starts on Amazon Prime next week. So, yeah, my really up-to-date credit, if no one's heard, I don't know if you've heard of it, guys, Star Trek The Next Generation. (laughs) I I saw uh, Patrick Stewart on Graham Norton this week, um, and he was talking about, because it's like a, there's like a new series yeah yeah it starts next week on amazon okay okay so that's coming up um so will you be watching that as well oh 100 yeah. yeah i'm incredibly excited for that so basically there's um i found it on game radar actually if anyone's interested it's very useful so i don't need to claw through all seven seasons of next generation there's 10 episodes they've suggested you watch in preparation for the new series so i'm following that list uh, i've got time to do that i probably haven't got time to watch the entirety of next generation before the new series drops so yeah a concise version of it <laughs> very nice and i heard yeah patrick stewart really didn't want to do the new series and then eventually read the script and was sort of won over so it sounds like he's fully back on board so uh yeah i i mean I don't care, but loads of people will. <laughs> loads of people will. So get on it on uh, Prime when you get the chance. Uh, coming up, when, sorry, when did you say the new series is releasing? Uh, I think it's Friday, actually, which is annoyingly when I'm away, but mm. I'll catch up with it when I'm back. So, yeah. Nice. Well, that brings us to the end of today's episode. I hope you have enjoyed it. And again, our deepest uh, apologies for missing one week of this show. We will not do it again, and we've accepted our slap on the wrist. Um, please get in touch with the show if you have any questions or queries, or you think that we made horrible factual errors or got our top fives completely wrong, or you agree with us. I mean, that could happen as well. Um, in addition to that, we are available via Twitter at Strangers Cinema and through facebook and instagram and the usual platforms paul any final words no (laughs) in that case uh, (laughs) see you next time goodbye shut up and sit down